In today's podcast, we take a recent Facebook Live from Dr. Garcia talking about consequences and when children hit. This is the Early Foundations podcast with your host, Dr. Isela Garcia with the Lessie Group. Okay, so uh, we had a bunch of questions that came up after the last time I was on uh, around um, what to do when a child hits was one of the questions and about consequences and whether we impose consequences. Now, I'm going to, um, I'm having a hard time deciding at what, where exactly do I begin? Um, I will tell you that there is not a one um, way or one approach to answer the question about a child hitting. Now, this is why it gets complex. And this is why for so many, many, many years, uh, the approach that has been taken uh, historically is that um, we create a one size fits all approach to when a child misbehaves and hitting is something that happens, definitely happens when children are younger. Um, And it happens is, you know, even before the age of one where kids just start to kind of whack other people around them. But at that point, you know, they're still trying to figure out how to manage um, their body, how to actually get it to do what they want it to do. Um, The the, then as a child continues to grow, um, we hope that uh, they will develop self-regulation skills to some degree. Now, the reality and the truth in terms of brain development is that self-regulation doesn't actually um, complete its its development at age four or five. And so what I find so astounding is that there's an expectation that children are going to come to school. Um, knowing how to manage their emotions, to understand what it is that they're feeling and know what to do with that and not be reactive. I, I'm, I, it's absurd to me um, that we would have the expectation that children would be able to keep it together and be able to function at that level um, at such a young developmental stage. Um, so the, and, and this is what's hard because, you know, I remember, um, Oh, geez, the assertive discipline approach that when a child, I think I grew up even with it, that if you do something wrong, we're going to put your name on the board and then we're going to check if you, you know, do something worse. And then after like two or three checks, they, you get a phone call home or you get asked to leave the office. That is a punishment model. That is a punishment reward model. And that's what I talked about at the last, um, in the last session that I did. Now, the It's easy. It's easy. It's black and white. It's concrete. And it also aligns with many of our foundational um, beliefs as parents uh, that that when a child does something wrong, they need to suffer a consequence. And when a child does something wrong, our go to is often to withhold love. And I've talked about this where withholding love um, looks uh, uh, 10 different ways. It looks like you can't go outside to uh, for to go outside a recess, you um, are going to lose the, your your uh, opportunity to go on a field trip. You don't get to do centers on Friday because we only do it one day a week. Um, you don't get to play the game that everybody else is playing. Um, you're going to be kind of ostracized or, or put off to the side and while we're over here enjoying ourselves. And so there are lots of ways that withholding love looks like. And many of us have a difficult time releasing and letting go of the belief that children should 
feel bad and that then when they feel bad enough, they'll want to act right. That it doesn't work with adults. It doesn't work with most of us. And when it does work, it's often uh, squashes the spirit of the child or the individual when we see success, when we see something successful coming from that experience. Um, it isn't what we truly want. And then the long-term implications of that is it squashes the spirit of the child. And so it's something that I get super concerned about, especially when there's so much attention right now around anxiety and, um, and all the other things that are happening in children's lives that create, unfortunately, even more difficult experience for them to develop self-regulation skills um, that help them be successful as adults. So what do you do when a child hits? My first question, when a teacher asks me this, uh, question. My first question back to the teacher is, what's the unmet need? Okay. So when a child misbehaves, 99% of the time, it's an unmet need. Okay. You have to figure out what the unmet need is. Now, I'm going to give you some examples of unmet needs because most of the time, it's a need for connection. And if you've taken any Psych 101 class, if you've taken any class about um, attention-seeking behaviors, that's a very common term that's used in a lot of, um, you know, course, college coursework and textbooks. And, you know, it's, it's he's seeking attention. Um, we had it all wrong. It actually is connection-seeking behaviors. And so a large percentage of the time when you're trying to understand what the unmet need is, it's a need for connection. And maybe the child has been successful at getting the connection he needs, but in a way that's um, negative or inappropriate or when he does something that's unacceptable. Um, doing something that's unacceptable and everybody stops to pay close attention. And that's why we go, oh, he only wants attention, so we're going to ignore it. Um, unfortunately, with our more challenging circumstances in terms of kids and, and all kids in general, but when I'm talking about the more challenging situations, when we ignore the behavior, it actually tends to escalate because really what they're saying is I need connection. I need connection. And our natural inclination, if you grew up in a punishment reward model as a child, is when a child is saying I need it, we go you know, you're going to have to leave the classroom, we're going to put you in timeout, we're going to take away a privilege from you. And so our natural inclination is to do the opposite of what the child actually needs. So the first question uh, that I mentioned was, what is the unmet need? Um, oftentimes, if it's not connection, you have to look at, is it language? Is that the child has a difficult time articulating what it is he's feeling and what he needs? We often see this with kiddos whose English is, um, English is not their primary home language, uh, or children who have a hard time articulating their needs in terms of language development, or even articulation and being like children can't understand them. So, you know, their language skills haven't developed very well. Um, we see this especially with younger children, but even older children who, again, are still working on developing those skills. So with younger children, we see a lot of biters. If you work with infants and, or toddler, that toddler young threes, uh, sometimes it pushes into fours. We see kiddos um, that bite. And I will tell you, biting works. Biting is a very effective way 
to get what I want. Now it isn't socially acceptable and it's not appropriate to be, you know, 25 years old and bite somebody to get what you want. That's not an acceptable behavior. So we don't want that to continue, right? But it is developmentally um, a, a normal thing for children to feel that it's a successful strategy to get what you want. So we'll play out the scenario. Two children are wanting one particular toy. And you know, what's interesting, if you do work with infant toddlers, one of the things that teachers say to me all the time is, we have two of the exact same toy. Why is he wanting the one she has all of the time? I offer the one that's over here that no one's using. It's the exact same thing. Why is he wanting the same thing? that she has. And what's a, a very cool perspective about this is that the child isn't wanting the toy. The child is wanting the experience the child is having with the toy. So it changes the whole dynamic. If you look at it through the lens, it's not exactly the toy that he's fighting for. It's the experience that he's seeing the child have with the toy that he wants. And so Anyway, he goes up to her and she's using, you know, because he wants the experience, right? She won't let it go. And so he hump, bites her and she magically lets go and starts screaming and yelling and going, goes over to the teacher and the child goes, ha ha, it worked. I got the toy. My God, look at how, look at how effective biting is. It's also an easier way um, to get that need met. And it's harder to come up with language that, that, you know, that the other child can understand, especially if I, they have difficulty understanding me. Uh, but I might not know how to say my turn, please, or when can I have a turn? Um, and so it, it, children learn these strategies. Every child comes to us from, um, from, from home to school uh, being social and emotionally literate based on their experiences at home. And so our job is to help children uh, learn the skills to be successful uh, in terms of their social emotional development in our civilized society. That's, that's what our goal is. And one of the things that I talk quite a bit about is helping children learn to be bicultural. And um, I don't know how many of you have heard this story, but I have shared the story of uh, growing up in a home where there were things that were social, that were very acceptable in my family. One of them was using inappropriate language. I, it was very acceptable for me as a very young child to use inappropriate language. Not only that, I was taught to use the inappropriate language. And so I go to school and, you know, everyone thinks it's cute at home. And I go to school and I use it with my teacher and she doesn't think it's as cute as everybody else at home did. And so that's an example of not being uh, culturally um, bilingual so that or bicultural so that I don't have an understanding of what's socially acceptable at school and then what's acceptable at home. And so one of the, our jobs is to be able to help children understand that these are the things that you will need to do in order to be successful at school. So you have to figure out if the child's biting or hitting because he has a hard time articulating or for other children to understand him, what can you do to support that communication process? Is it giving language to the child and giving very short phrases for him to be able to and practice that experience of, of expressing uh, what he needs or what he wants? Um, is it helping other children understand that when a child, and you could even incorporate some sign language if we're talking younger children or children who have some special needs or some very special um, language developmental needs. And so you can say to the children, when he says this, this is what it means. And so that way we can communicate more effectively with one another. You have to actually intentionally practice that. Um, when a child is, 
is, you know, every child, again, is developing their self-regulation skills and there are different levels. So if a child hits another kid because he is, you know, he's reactive, then the unmet need is knowing how to develop what I call that hiccup. It's the pause. It's the pause between a reactive state and a responsive state. It's moving from the executive function. I mean, I'm sorry, that was totally wrong. The brainstem here, which is our reactive fight or flight into our, um, into our prefrontal cortex. And so this pause is going from a reaction to a response. And many adults have a very difficult time with this. Something happens, bam, I'm, I'm like, how dare you, blah, blah, blah. And we react, right? And when we react, we're actually in our brainstem. We are, we, we are in an emotional state of being that we aren't able to make rational decisions in that moment. So a child hits because he's frustrated. He gets in a reactive state of being. And then we try to rationalize with that. We go, how many times do I have to tell you? You know better not to hit. That's not what we do at school. Do we hit our friends? I hate that question. Do we hit our friends? First of all, we are not all friends. So I wish teachers would stop using that term. We are not all friends. Friendship is something that you develop, that you cultivate, that you work at. Friendship requires some very specific skills of being responsive and respectful and honest and trustworthy. That's what it means to be a friend. And when we use the term friends, Flippantly, it's very confusing for children to understand and develop the true meaning of what it means to have friends. So please stop asking children questions like, do we hit our friends at school? Because this honestly happened in a classroom. The teacher said that to a child when I was doing an observation. She goes, uh, let's say, Bobby, Bobby, do we hit our friends at school? He said to her, he looked at her and he said, she ain't my friend. And she turned around and looked at me a little embarrassed. And I said, he's right. That's not his friend. So you asked him a question, do I? I yeah, no, I don't hit my friends, but she's not my friend. And so the, the child, just like adults, is still learning how to move from a re reactive state that I want now. I don't know what to do with this frustration that I'm feeling because I want what he had. Or maybe he is playing in a space or in a space that I feel a little uncomfortable about. So I have to be able to know what it is that I'm feeling and I have to be able to say, please step back. And the way that we do that is we help children learn to develop a pause. And we help children develop self-regulation skills through the executive function by practicing stop-and-go types of experiences. So I'll give you examples of the way that we do a pause. And this comes from Dr. Dr. Becky Bailey uh, from Conscious Discipline. We do what's called stop, take a deep breath, and relax. Now, Becky, I think now does stop, take a deep breath, and smile. Or no, smile, take a deep breath, and relax. We still use the stop, take a deep breath, and relax. And all that is is helping children be able to practice stopping and doing some deep Deep breathing. Deep breathing is a magical experience because when you get very good at this, you can actually do this as an adult. I use this when I train adults. And what we do is we help children learn how to take deep belly breaths. Now, oxygen has to get to the brain. I mean, that part is how we, when the oxygen moves through the body, we calm our body. We can move from the reactive state of being to a more responsive state of being. And so we are able to then make rational decisions. Have you ever tried? to calm anyone down who was out of control.
as an adult, it doesn't help if they're spiraling out. And what I think is the funniest thing ever is when a two-year-old or a three-year-old, you try to tie their shoes, you try to help them with something and they throw themselves out. They're like, no, that's not the way you do it. And they freak out and they're on the floor and they're taking their shoes off. They're yelling every which direction. And the adult is standing over them going, how many times do I have to tell you, you know better than this. You better not do this again. Uh, we have to hurry up and go. And they're trying, or they go, if you hurry up, we can, we can get to the store and we can get candy if you blow. And so they try to somehow either make some sort of deal with the child or threaten the child when the child cannot from a physiological perspective cannot be responsive to you and so they just continue to cycle out and then you start to cycle and then you're mirroring the same experience and it just goes all bad in terms of their their developing brain develop their their developing their ability and their understanding of how to regulate their emotions so when we're out of sync with our own emotions, they're simply going to continue to spiral out. So when a child is um, learning to develop that pause and you want to help them develop the deep breathing, which I, we do three deep breaths. And the way that I do it, even with very young children and even older children, is you want to get deep breath into the belly. And so we put objects, often stuffed animals on our belly. We lay down. Um, nice time to do that is right after lunchtime. If you come in, you can take a couple deep belly breaths just to practice the experience. And then as the day progresses, you practice deep breathing. Now, I will tell you, do not practice deep breathing in the middle of a crisis situation or a difficult situation. So this is not what it should sound like. The kid's out of control. The kid's screaming. And we go, let's take a couple deep breaths. Let's move from your, you, you don't want to do that. Because think about it from an adult perspective. If the adult is out of control, we don't go, okay, let's take a deep breath now. Because you probably want to, you know, slap somebody if they told you that. And so you want to practice, 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 practice through the course of the day, every day. And what I used to do as a classroom teacher is I would practice it uh, right before we started circle time or in the middle of circle time, at the end of circle time, um, when we transitioned from outside to inside, when we... Um, if we had meal time together at the end of a meal or before. Now, I don't have children wait for everybody because wait time is bad. Um, the longer children wait and they start to hit and punch and kick and spit and all those things, that's not their fault. That's our fault for expecting them to wait. And so we have to make sure that we are being very, um, uh, uh, very knowledgeable of what expectations we have of children. And this is one of the biggest dangers of this all. So if children are misbehaving, we do need to figure out what the unmet need is. Okay, so we've got a kid that hits. Why is he hitting? What's the unmet need? Is, it the, is he still learning some self-regulation, being able to understand what he's feeling, how to articulate? Is it that he needs to develop the pause between reacting and, and what is the unmet need? Okay, it, does he not feel connected to other children and peers? Does he not have somebody where he feels he's got a friend, a real friend, a buddy in the classroom who he feels connected to? Does he not feel connected to the entire classroom as a, as a community? Does he feel somehow left out of the group? Because if I felt left out of the group and I had no other way to get a connection, I might do something that's inappropriate so that in that short duration of time, you're offering some connection to me. Um, is it that the child is having some difficult experiences at home and needs to feel safe 
emotionally safe in the environment and that um, there's some inconsistencies happening at, at school or at home. That requires a teacher to be very in tuned to the needs of children so that she can, or that particular child so that she can um, ensure that he knows he is safe at school and that he is emotionally safe. It's not enough to say it. it you have to live the experience of honoring children's emotions. Um, it is not acceptable to minimize um, or to, to demean children, even if they're feeling something that you just don't understand or agree with. So oftentimes we go, you know, why are you crying? What's the matter with you? You know, you, your, your mom's going to come back for you. You already had a turn with that. Um, you need to share all of the things that children might get triggered by. Oftentimes we, 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 we like foo-foo it. And I think about it from an adult perspective. If I went to a very good friend of mine and I was crying about something and I was really distressed and in her experience of life, she thought, well, you know what? Crap, I've been through that like five times. Why are you crying about that? If I had somebody respond to me that way, she would not be the one that I would go to. She would not be the one that I would trust about this experience. And so we are developing children's, we're helping to develop children's experiences that become the foundation for the rest of their lives in how we respond and how our body language is and how our, our tone is. So everything that we do becomes such a significant part of their understanding and the lens they begin to see um, the world through. So um, as I was saying, the unmet need is what you have to figure out. And then you got to figure out how do you support the unmet need? You help teach the experience that the child needs, the process that he needs, and you help practice that. Um, but again, I'm going to go back to the comment that I made and I didn't finish it. Far too often, I'm getting questions about children being off task. Far too often, I'm getting questions about children who are not able to sit still for long periods of time. And let me tell you that the reason why children aren't having a difficult time with off task or getting off task, not task completion, um, getting up from their, their table or their, their chair or their desk, um, not wanting to, uh, you know, having a difficult time moving from point A to point B, uh, that I would say most of the time is because our expectations of behavior are inappropriate, that we don't have a deep understanding of what is developmentally appropriate for three, four, five, six, seven, and eight-year-old children in terms of what they need uh, for learning. And when children sit for more than 10 to 15 minutes at a time um, and not engaged, even engaged in those experiences, like being physically engaged in the experience of learning, uh, children will often, children have a difficult time um, staying on task. That That's just going to spiral out. That's going to become increasingly more challenging. And so um, we have to really be we have to know and understand what is best practice and can't, we shouldn't hold children accountable um, for behaviors that developmentally they're not there yet, just because of, you know, they're where they are in terms of their age and uh, developmental level. All right. So the next thing is uh, the question about logical uh, or consequences. And, you know, I was, more recently, I had a conversation with somebody about natural and logical consequences. And this is something that I remember coming up when I was doing my undergrad work. Uh, and I forget, it was like there were four reasons why children misbehave. And then there were this logical and, um, and natural consequence. Now, natural consequences, I think, you know, happen. It's cold outside. Uh, it's time for us to put our coats on. 
and you chose not to put your coat on. And so you go outside and now you're freezing. I mean, that's a natural consequence, right? Um, and so we all deal with natural consequences. I'm a big one for dealing with natural consequences in my life. Um, you know, I didn't get something done in the time frame that it needed to be done. So now I'm going to be up all night until it gets done because it needs to be submitted tomorrow. And so, you know, there are a lot, you know, there are things in life that I believe um, you know, just kind of set itself for, you know, being a consequence of our decisions, our actions, our behaviors. Now, the logical piece to this, and this is the part where it still really is a punishment model. It's just labeled in a very nice way. So a logical consequence, and let me see, there was, I actually pulled up a site here where it talked about, um, uh, actually, I think it's WebMD. It says, are consequences chosen to follow behaviors that violate uh, the acceptable behavior within a family or other group. These consequences are set up to logically follow when a person breaks family rules, values, or acceptable behaviors. And this aligns also with classroom um, expectations as well. And so it says here, for example, a young child who throws a toy may be taken to a time out to calm down and think about his or her behavior. So logical consequences are, our consequences are still, um, they are still, ways that we respond to behavior from a punishment model. Um, and that one was a perfect example on WebMD. A child throws a toy. And so now we take him to timeout because he threw a toy. Well, why the heck did he throw the toy? What was it that he was needing at the time? Was it frustrating because the string broke off? Was it broken and it wasn't working the way it usually does? Was he done with the toy? One of the big reasons why children actually... Um, like destroy areas or have a, or hit children um, is because they don't know how to enter and exit play. They don't know how to enter a social experience. They don't know how to end, exit a social experience. I don't like social experiences as a person. I train. I love connecting with people from a professional perspective. I can sit and talk for hours about children and about life and about, you know, all of those deep types of um, concepts. But to do a social experience just where I go out and, you know, hang out with a bunch of people, I, get, I, I am not comfortable with that experience. And so even as an adult, I've learned these skills. I've had to develop these skills to be able to fake it because I don't enjoy it. Now for a young child, and they, when they don't feel like they can, um, they are a part of a group and they want to enter a group or enter an experience, they don't know how to do that. And so sometimes uh, children will throw things, will push children because they don't know how to enter. And so one of the things that we do is we give children skip scripts or language to help them enter play. And so the script is, how can I play? Or when can I have a turn? Okay, um, we need to get rid of the the belief that children need to share. Now, if there are a lot of Legos, there's like you know five thousand piece Legos, and there is enough for five six children to use, then you work into a problem solving um, or a conflict resolution model. So you go, okay, what can five kids do um, so that everyone can have an opportunity to use the Legos? What can five kids do? And then you work through the problem solving process to help them. Uh, come up with strategies and the children should be the ones in charge of that. Um, teachers should never say, well, if you can't figure out, we're going to put it away because you, they lose the opportunity to learn what to do. And that's why timeout. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why timeout is, is not a good thing, but one of the things is that first off you remove a child from the situation, like the little boy with the toy that he threw the toy. Why did he throw the toy? We have to figure that part out.
And then if it was just him being reactive, then we have, we recognize that the need is to help him be able to say, I'm all done now. Okay. So enter play. When can I play? Um, when can I have a turn? How can I, how can I play? So I'm sorry. I, we go, how can I play or when can I have a turn? And again, if there's an opportunity where you can problem solve, that has to be in the child's, uh, in, in their experience of problem solving. So with the younger children, uh, you're gonna, you might give options. So what if we divide it into five parts and the children go, no, we don't like that. Okay, well, what if, and so younger children or children who are just beginning to do this, you're going to give them possible solutions. Everybody must agree everybody must agree um, and that you have to make sure that you follow through once children agree okay so back to the uh, situation where we're figure are entering and exiting play so or in a circumstance or a group so the question is when can I have a turn how can I play um, I would like a part please uh, somehow and the reason why we say it that way instead of can I play is because children can say no. Children can be exclusive instead of inclusive. Um, then what we see very often is when children are actually in an experience like the block area or, um, you know, and I know in some of our kindergarten classrooms, you don't have certain areas of the classroom, but let's say they're working collectively together. One of the challenges is they don't know how to exit. I know when I'm in a social experience, I'm done with this conversation. Like I really want to go away now. And I don't know how to exit the conversation. Now we have phones and we can go, oh, I got a message. <laughs> or we can respond that way and we can slide out. But children don't know how to do that. And so, so often a child will push down stuff. They'll knock over things. They'll throw a pencil across the, the, the classroom. And the, what the core is, is they don't know how to exit. And so you have to give them language or scripts to teach them what they can do and say. And so one of them might be, I'm all done now. I'm all done now. And the older children, I say, I'm all done now. What part would you like for me to clean up? What would you like for me to do? Because the other child may not be done with the experience yet. And so that child may go, okay, I want you to clean this part up because I don't want to be responsible for cleaning everything up. But, or the child might say, you know what, leave it alone. I'm going to take care of it. And then that, that, that shifts the responsibility to that child and the child can move on. And so you actually have to give children language to use to be, to learn how to um, engage in a socially acceptable way. Too often we punish children or we try to impose consequences um, for, for things that children don't even know how to do successfully yet. And so, okay, I'm going to go back to what I originally said. The child hits. Why is he hitting? Why is he hitting? What's the unmet need? And you know what? Teachers tell me all the time. Well, I don't know why. He just does. He does it all the time. There's no reason. There's nothing happening before or after he just does. And that I will tell you from my professional experience is never true, never true. There is a reason why it may be in the classroom. It may not be uh, in the classroom. It may be something that happens consistently every day at 530 in the morning when they wake up. But you have to figure out how do I reach the child to the place of being connected right? Because connectedness governs behavior. And if you're trying to help a child learn what to do instead, he has to feel connected to you. 
Because if he doesn't feel connected to you from an emotional place, which means that he feels safe, he feels that you're not going to judge him and that you're not going to hold against him behaviors that he has today. Too often we hold, we hold, we hold it against children. You know, they misbehaved yesterday. We had a horrible day. We had a horrible day. It was, it was challenging. I went home, you know, exhausted from the experience and I come back and I go, you know what, we're going to have the same day today. I know it. I know it. And so then we tend to have resentment towards the child or we withhold love. And sometimes it's such a deep subconscious level. We're not even aware of it. So we have to recognize what's happening within us and that each day is a new start. Each day is a new beginning. And that no matter what, and I am telling you, I have had children threaten, I have had children throw things, I have had, and I've sat in with children for long periods of time, because I've worked in, you know, in the most crisis situations. And in the, every moment of that experience, my practice that I engaged in while being, being in that is still seen through the lens of love that I could see that the child wasn't giving me a hard time. The child was having a hard time and that my job was to be, to be the pillar of strength. My job was to love unconditionally and that my job was to know that the child was, that it wasn't about me. I to take my personal perspective out of it, that he's doing it to piss me off. He's doing it to be hurtful. He's doing it all. He is four, five, six, seven, and eight. I, I, I have never been in a situation where I felt like the child or believed that the some, somehow a child was trying to do harm to me, even though it may look like that and even though it might sound like that. And so I practice the process of seeing through the lens of love, even in the most difficult situations, and that every day we get to start brand new. And, and, and even if, when you get really good at this, it's every moment of every day. And that when you have an expectation that you do follow through. So you have to make sure that you are very aware of when you say things, that you say them from a place of integrity, that you say it from a place of um, recognizing uh, or, or from a, a, having very clear expectations. Please do not ever use sarcasm with children. Please don't ever use sarcasm with children. It, it, it's disrespectful and it's not fair to them because they don't know what you're, what you're doing. And what you're doing is you're, you're doing what's passive aggressive. And these foundational experiences become part of their experience as they continue to grow. So there's no room for sarcasm. There's no room for threats. There's no room to, to say to hold, um, you know, behaviors against children. You look at them through the lens of love and you go, I am here to be, to serve. And I am here to help guide your experiences so that you become better through practice, through uh, that you will become proficient. And it doesn't matter, you know, how bad you screw up. I'm still going to be here to care about you. Um, in my classroom, for many of my children, what I offered to them is the only place in their lives that they, they had that experience. And so for some of you, you might be able to relate to what I'm saying. And maybe you work with families and children who are very different than what I've worked with. Um, and, you know, but still in, in my experience is that when you come through the lens of love and you recognize that you're helping children develop those skills and you're coming from um, wanting them to be successful, then you recognize your role in how you influence um, who they are today and create the foundations for really the rest of their lives. I really, I, with my whole heart, believe that, that is, um, that's why our job is so critical 
uh, when we engage with children every single day. So I hope that is helpful. Um, and again, I, you know, there is no quick answer about what to do when a child hits. I will say that one of my uh, go-tos is I say to them, um, hitting hurts at this school, because remember, we want to use the front end, the script at school. So at school, we make sure everyone is safe. We make sure everyone is safe. It is not okay to hit. Come and children, we help children make amends. And I think I mentioned that in a video before. We don't have children apologize. So look for that video. I think I did a whole video on apologizing and make versus making amends. Um, but that I help children then develop an understanding of what to do instead. Um, timeout and punishment models do not help children what to do instead. They come from a um, power over approach. And if you do something, then something will get taken away from you, which might be connection, which might be love, which might be being a part of the group, which might be recess, could be all of those things. But they are still a power over punishment model and they do not teach foundational skills. So hopefully this is helpful uh, to you all. If you have any questions, um, yeah, feel free to ask. Stay connected to us.